Hello and welcome to another episode of You Could Hide to Collab podcast. We're grateful to be with you today. My name is Daniel and this is my brother Clive. Hello everybody, welcome and Daniel, it's uh, another great episode. I think today we're finishing off the tail end of Compare Isaiah and then we're really getting into Nephi's testimony of the whole thing. Yeah, we are. It's a it's been a little bit it's been a challenging few chapters, but it's still been really good to try to delve into it as much as we can. And I hope that everyone's been able to come along for the journey and understand Isaiah a little bit more than what we maybe have done over over the last few years. I'm going to start us with a quote. This is from Jeffrey R. Holland. I ask that my testimony of the Book of Mormon and all that it implies, given today under my own oath and office, be recorded by men on earth and angels in heaven. I hope I have a few years left in my last days, but whether I do or do not, I want it absolutely clear when I stand before the judgment bar of God that I declared to the world in the most straightforward language I could summon that the Book of Mormon is true, that it came forth the way Joseph said it came forth and was given to bring happiness and hope to the faithful in the travail of the latter days. If you have or haven't joined us over the last couple of weeks, Nephi's taken a break from, from Jacob speaking and has thought that he needs to record some of the words of Isaiah because he needs it for his posterity. It needs it for people who the plates are going to be handed down to. And he also wants it for the people in who the people of Nephi, he wants it for them as well so that they can get a clear understanding. And from the mouth of three, the three witnesses being Jacob, Isaiah, and Nephi, all three of these prophets are in unison and their message is the same. And that's why Nephi's decided to record these words of Isaiah. But we start with, I might start, Clive, on chapter 20, verse 1 to 4 is, uh, really, chapter 20 is cut into two main stories, verse 1 to verse 4, and then 5 to almost 34, 5 all all the way to the end. Isaiah is talking to or talking about the leaders of Jerusalem, the leaders of Israel, the leaders of Judah. And he's, he's saying unto them, woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees. So immediately, like I said, he's talking to the leaders here. And that right grievousness, which they have prescribed. So he's saying, woe unto those leaders, the ones who are writing things down, the ones who are setting laws, the ones who are asserting their dominance, their, their own brand of religion their own captivity to the rest of the people. He's saying, woe unto those people. He's singling them out. And he says here in verse 2, to turn away the needy from judgment and to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may, may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. He's got some pretty strong words here in terms of he's, he's singling people out and, you know, he, he says here that there is, they're preying on the poor, the, the poor of my people, widows. So this is Isaiah, the widows may be their prey. And you think about widows being someone's prey. There must be a disgusting type of individual who would prey on a widow and rob the fatherless. Well, that's a description of someone. If you think of someone with a, without a father, they're without a protector, they're without a provider, in, in certainly in Isaiah's time. And so to rob someone without a protector 
and rob someone without a provider is low cowardice. It's it's as bad as it can get. And so he's he's describing as what these leaders of of Israel are doing. They're 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 putting decrees on people who can't even protect themselves. And that's how cowardice they are. And he says what in verse three, and what will ye do in the day of visitation, in the desolation which shall come from far? To whom will ye flee? And there will ye leave your glory? So he's saying you're you're doing these horrible things and you're doing it to people who can't protect themselves. But what are you going to do in the end? What are you actually going to do when the second come when the millennium comes? There's nothing that you what what are you going to say? What are you, how are you going to try and cover your tracks? So he says here, and this is masonically speaking: without me they shall bow down under the prisoners, for they shall fall under the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Isaiah is calling out the leaders. He's calling them out that they're really judging and they're trying, they're almost through laws, are attacking the the lowest of the classes, the weakest of the people. And he's saying, what are you going to do when Christ comes? But then he reminds them, but actually Christ's hands will still be stretched out. And I think I I was thinking about this, I thought I'd ask you in terms of, what must the state of the people of Nephi be like if if Nephi has chosen this part of Isaiah to record to them? Well, just as you were reading it, it really like hit home. It felt very typical of today's people. Today's people don't think about what would happen to me when I die. Am I going to be a good person? They think, what can I do today to make my life better? Not how can I help others or what can I do to praise God? They think, what can I do myself right now for me to be better, for me to be richer, for me to feel happier, for me to not worry about the world and just focus on me? And they don't seem to think about the future. So this has happened in Isaiah's day, but this is something that's going to be happening for the next thousands of years up to today. So yeah, it definitely would be happening in Nephi's time. And I think this is definitely a scripture that's probably mentioned a lot. Yeah, and I think that the the fact that he's telling this story and ending it with that Christ's hand will still be stretched out, reminding people, taking people through that that you can always come back, you can always kind of return. Yeah, this isn't, it's not the end, you know, you have been wicked, but it's okay. At any moment, you can stop, stop your wicked ways and Christ will be there to save you. Yeah, That's, that's the first few verses of chapter 20. The almost the entire remainder of chapter 20 is this story about uh, the Assyrian nation. I'll summarize it a little bit before I go into any verses and, ha- and help it make a bit more sense. But what what's happened here is there's many nations who are, they're, they're described in this text as being hypocritical. And the Lord is using the Assyrian nation to stamp out or to to take over or to remind these other nations that that Christ is still in charge and that they think they can have it all their way and they think they can be wicked without any repercussions but that's just simply not the case and so we see this in in verse 6 and I will send him against the hypocritical nation so him being Assyria and I'll send him against the hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey 
and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. So he's being extremely descriptive here. There is an Assyrian nation and they will be used to remind other nations that what they're doing is is wrong. The story unfolds that the Assyrians then get far too far too big for their boots, so to speak. And they, the Assyrians, think that, well, things are going so well for them, the gods of the other nations aren't helping their people, the the god of the other nations aren't helping their people, aren't protecting them, aren't helping those nations fight against the Assyrians, and so therefore the Assyrian god is the best god. And therefore they can kind of take over anyone. And so they they think that they're going to take over Jerusalem and they think that that's, uh, and, and Judah, they think that they're going to take over them next. And so the Assyrian nation is reminded that Christ has actually been helping them this whole time fulfill Christ's work. Christ hasn't been helping Assyria fulfill Assyria's work. And we read this here, some pretty harsh words, I will punish, so this is halfway through verse 12, and I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. And he says in 13, for he saith by the strength of my hand, so the king of Assyria is saying by the strength of my hand, and by my wisdom, I have done these things. So king of Assyria is saying by my hand and by my wisdom, have I conquered these for I am prudent and I have moved the borders of the people and have robbed their treasures and have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. The the text is pointing out that the king of Assyria is being pretty confident, pretty cocky actually, that they've they've been able to establish all of these things for their own right. But then it's but then there is a reminder here, verse 15, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? So saying in normal speak, normal non-Isaiah speak, can an axe just move itself? And can a, can a saw just cut a tree down? And so say, no, no, Assyria is the axe. Assyria is the, is the saw. And Christ is the one that's the power to move those tools. Assyria is just a tool in what Christ needs to come to pass. And he says, and if the rod should shake itself against him that lifted up, or as if the staff would lift up itself as if there were no wood, therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. And so he goes on and on and on and on and and shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. And they shall be as when a standard bearer fainteth. So it's, this is classic Isaiah kind of language here. I thought Clive, just in terms of there's a, there's a story that's not simple. It's, it's, it's got some complexity, not a lot of complexity, but, it's really, the story is really, really drawn out. Like it's not, hey, Assyria, like you're doing too much. You're getting a bit too big for your boots. Like calm down. It's, you know, 20 verses describing describing that. 
Isaiah likes his metaphors, doesn't he? Like he'll tell a story, then he'll give a metaphor of what's about to happen, and then he'll go back into his story. And it's really, you know, the things that he's really focusing on there. Also, you know, when in the scriptures, as soon as you hear that somebody is boasting about how good they are and the Lord has put them in your place, you know something big's about to happen as well, you know? It's just one of those things. Like as soon as someone starts boasting and they need to understand that it's the Lord's hand in their work, suddenly you just you just know something you know it would be interesting to read that new bible that's i don't know how old it would be it'd only be a few years old the new the new um you know like the one that's got joining words and it's got slang in it and it's got like it's like it like it yeah like (laughs) like like i mean would that make it easier to understand like hey it's hey chapter isaiah isaiah 10 is probably three verses there's there's one that came out about 15 years ago that's probably more our speed for right. easy to understand more of our language the gen z one i really don't think would get <laughs> but i think it's it's it like it this is a great story it's just super super long-winded like i said there's there's only a couple of stories there's only a, a really just a couple of stories in chapter 20 but they go for a lot of verses and they're a, they're a good lesson. They're good to know. Well, it's what it's it's what we should know. We should know that story, but we also go about it a very very long way, which kind of I guess is why it makes it such a challenge to read. And I guess that goes back to what you said last week when you read that quote about you know even if it's hard to read, just keep reading and get through it because you sort of like you said, yeah, you understand what he's trying to say the first few verses, and then he almost continues on trying to re-explain what he's just explained and you just sort of got to get through and go okay let's just get through this and move on to the next bit okay well speaking of the next bit chapter 21 this is got some complication and i just want to talk i actually just wanted to talk this one through with you and just see see what you thought because i've got some markings down in my scriptures that i'm i think are wrong the more i read this but i'm not sure so i'm gonna i'm I'm gonna try to spell it out a bit and and see what you think we're we're gonna get i'm gonna get stuck on verse one and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots so we've got three things that we're talking about there shall come forth a rod. So the rod is the first. I'm actually going to write this down right now. Rod. Okay, so there's a rod. And then the rod will come out of the stem of Jesse. So then we've got a stem of Jesse. Write that down as well. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. So the branch is going to grow. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow. So the branch comes out of the rod. Happy with that? Right. What do you think? Sure. I'm happy with that. Yeah. So there's a rod. There's a rod that comes from the stem of Jesse and the roots will come out of the rod. Right. That's how I read it. Yep. Okay. So now we've got to figure out who is who. Okay. So okay. the, well, first of all, let's just go straight to the footnotes. And I did, oh no, I did mark this. Okay. So. We've got the first, the footnotes we're going to go to is Doctrine and Covenants 113 verses 1 and 2. And so this is a question and answer session. And the question is in 113 verse 1, who is the stem? So we talk about the stem of Jesse. Who is the stem of Jesse spoken of in the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth verse 
of the 11th chapter of Isaiah. And the stem is Christ. Right. You know why he actually refers to Jesse and not the stem of King David? Because Jesus came from a really royal line, but Jesse is a simple farmer. And it's interesting because the very first time that the stem or root of Jesse is ever mentioned, it's King Saul using it mocking King David, saying that he came from Jesse, this the root of Jesse, the stem of Jesse, this, this plain right. old farmer. And so when it refers to the stem of Jesse, because there really isn't much information about Jesse in the scriptures. So when it refers to him, it refers to the fact that Christ came from Jesse. He's just his farmer. He's the grandson of Ruth and Boaz, you know? So, yeah, so it's just interesting that that's the term that they use. So as in like a humility style or... Exactly. Very humble, very humble startings, you know, just a... Just humble beginnings. Right. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So we've got that first verse. So we've discovered that the stem of Jesse is Christ. We're lock. We're locking that away. So the stem of Jesse is Christ. We know that part. That's the second yeah, part that we discussed. Yeah, we're going to lock stem. that away. Yep. So now we have to figure out who the the rod is. Who is the who who is the rod? Right. Who's the rod that's coming forth out of the stem sure. of Jesse? And we talk about that it is going to be joseph smith so if we go back if we go back to doctrine and covenant section 113 it says what it doesn't say who it says what is the rod spoken of in the first verse of the 11th chapter of isaiah and that's exactly what we're reading that should come out of the stem of jesse and the answer in verse 4 Behold, thus saith the Lord, it is a servant in the hands of Christ, who is partly a descendant of Jesse as well as of Ephraim, or of the house of Joseph, on whom there is laid much power. So I found a couple of very interesting Book of Mormon commentary articles, and it's got a bit of a table here that the rod or root is Joseph Smith Jr., the stem is Christ. Jesse, how you've rightly mentioned, is a royal lineage of King David. And the branch is Christ. So Christ grows. So Christ Christ is growing. The church is growing, essentially. But it does. It, there's still some complication here because, and there shall come forth a rod, so there shall come forth Joseph Smith, out of the stem of Jesse. So there shall, Joseph Smith will come forth out of the stem of Jesse. Jesus Christ, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So Christ will grow out of his roots. That makes sense to me because Joseph Smith, the roots put down, grew Jesus Christ in this dispensation. Right? Have I put too? Have I put put Jesus too much Christ of church. that together? Jesus Christ Church authority. Everything that this church represents is that we mean like the well, the uh, gospel. I mean, I, I mean, you you could argue that before the well, in our brand of religion at least, you could argue that Christ was unknown until Joseph Smith had the first vision. But yes, there was Christianity, but there wasn't real Christianity. Yeah, well, I mean, Christ's always been known, but yeah, there has always been the confusion of. But has he Trinity. been known because 
there's not been any authority to speak to him. There's not been any prophecy. But everyone's known of Christ. The Trinity it hasn't right. always been believed. It's just that the Trinity came out and everyone decided, well, that's right. going to be the truth now. And then it goes for it goes goes on for two, three, four, five. And the spirit of the Lord, and I won't read them all, but and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears and so on and so on. Talks about righteousness, meekness, rod out of his mouth. Righteousness shall girdle his loins. It's interesting you're reading it now because as you read it, if I imagine it to be Joseph Smith, it reads very differently to how well, 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 is it Joseph Smith? Because here it says, who is the stem? So I'm going back to 113. And who is the stem of Jesse spoken about in the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth verses? It's Christ. Yeah, but it's talking about the rod. So it's talking about, in fact, when Moroni visited Joseph Smith in Joseph Smith history, it says he quoted the 11th chapter of Isaiah saying that this is about to be fulfilled. So it's got to be talking about Joseph Smith. So the things that we're reading now in... Um, yeah. Second Nephi chapter twenty-one, quoting from Isaiah eleven. If we imagine this as Joseph Smith fulfilling the prophecy, that so how spoken. does it fit then with the, so, with one hundred and thirteen, saying that Christ the stem, as spoken about in the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth, are Christ. So Christ and Joseph Smith are talked about in these five verses. Well, yeah. So I I see it as it's talking about. The stem of Jesse, which is Jesus Christ, and because of Christ, someone, the rod, speaking of Joseph Smith, will come out of, you know, the gospel will Will come from that person. Jesus Christ will come out of this person. Yeah, exactly. That's how I read it now. That's how I understand it from, you know, what we've been reading. So I've got something here, Clive. This is from Isaiah Plain and Simple from 1995. The root of Jesse could also be that particular prophet who hold the keys when Christ returns to preside personally over his kingdom. The term could even represent the office of the president of the church. In any case, the root of Jesse could also be that particular prophet who will hold the keys when Christ returns to preside personally over his kingdom. In any case, the root of Jesse designates a great leader in the church of Jesus Christ in this dispensation. So it could represent President Nelson right now, right? There is a warning in all the language here that speaks of God smiting the earth with the rod of his mouth and the very breath of his lips slaying the wicked. In those last days, Christ's judgment will be the truth he speaks and an acknowledgement of that truth from all who hear him in that millennial moment that the Messiah will usher in the peace for which all the righteousness have wished, worked, and waited. That's Jeffrey R. Holland back in 97. All right, so, hey, let's, um, let's you know, people are doing a great job at sending, asking questions to us and sharing things with us. If you've got a good thought on that, let us know. It's an interesting few things to read. Clive and I have talked about it a, a bunch of times now and even talked about even more different things while we're recording today. So classic Isaiah, lots of meanings and, and lots to talk about. In the next yeah. part, we go to the millennium. And there's some specifics here in terms of the there's animals used. 
So the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. So a couple of animals that wouldn't do that right now. So we've real a big example. The calf and the young lion, the fatling together, and a child shall lead them. So a child, an unqualified person, someone who's got no idea is going to lead these tamed beasts. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So this is in the millennium. It's talking about ultra peace. It's got these few animals that are listed, but they're very opposite animals in our current world. So kind of that I think they're there to make us think how on earth would a wolf and a lamb be friends? Like that's just, that's so counter to what we would imagine now. And so therefore it's an example that in the millennium, there will be so much peace that they won't, these animals wouldn't even consider harming themselves. In fact, they, they, they wouldn't, there's no ability to harm because there's so much peace. And, and then there's even more description and the sucking child. So a very, very young child shall play on the whole of the asp. The asp is a, is a snake, is a serpent in the, in, in Egypt uh, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of knowledge. And in that day there shall be a root. So the rod and the root are essentially interchangeable. A root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people to it, shall the Gentiles seek and rest and be glorious. Right. The millennium. The millennium. And the, the, millennium. And, and the question, Clive, is who, who, are they, who, who, gets, who, who eats what then? Who, who eats what? Who eats what? Yeah, it, it does say, yeah, that the lion mm. will eat straw. We'll all be vegetarians. Vegans. <laughs> we'll go, an, we'll go vegans, another level. Yeah, in fact. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't mean we have to be vegans now. You know, that's not what it's talking about. The lion, you know, isn't forced to eat straw now. We don't have to be vegans That's right, now. that's right. But in the future, there, there will be no harm, no contention amongst any of God's creatures. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. It'll be like the Garden of Eden yeah, all over yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so hey, we we might wish on the millennium, but do we really, really wish to be vegan also so soon? Not sure. <laughs> okay, well, I've I've gone through a fair few things, Clive. Ch- chapter 22 is the same sort of breath, um, but it's actually, it's actually the next level. In that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength. And in that day shall ye say, praise the Lord, call upon his name and declare his doings. Sing unto the Lord. So it's really in that millennium, there'll be loads of praise and loads of singing and everyone will just be extremely happy. Yeah, it's funny because so he talks about the millennium and how great it will be. And then in chapter 23, it sort of backtracks and goes, well, before actually all of this happens... There has to be this other thing first. So he starts comparing this great empire, Babylon. Babylon's this massive, massive city, largest city there is. There's walls built around it, indestructible. And he starts comparing this great city of Babylon to wickedness. And I want to read something first before I get into that from Bruce R. McConkie about Babylon. He says, Babylon is the degenerate social order created by lustful men who love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Babylon is the almighty governmental power that takes the saints of God into captivity. 
It is the false churches that build false temples and worship false gods. It is every false philosophy that leads men away from God and salvation. If you're talking about your of, of Babylon, there's nothing right. good from you. But what we'll notice is as we look through, he goes back and forth again. He likes his analogies. So he sort of goes back and forth between the physical destruction of Babylon and the spiritual side of it that Bruce R. McConkie's just spoken about. You know, the, the the spiritual version of you are a Babylon, you know, you're the wicked, wicked people of Babylon. So, you know, Babylon was destroyed, but it, it took a, a really long time. You know, Cyrus the Great came in and started taking over Babylon and eventually was taken over by Alexander the Great and it, it completely fell. But this is the, the story that he gets into. So he sees in a vision the downfall of Babylon, first of all, the, the physical Babylon we're speaking of now. And so he urges the people to prepare for this destruction. Now, when I read that, it took me straight back to Lehi and how the Book of Mormon really started. He saw the downfall right. and the destruction. He started telling the people, you know, we need to pray. It, need by, to way back in Jerusalem. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then he starts talking about that the destruction of Babylon represents the world. So this destruction of something so great that people doesn't think can ever be destroyed, this is the same thing that's going to happen to the world. You think that your days are, you know, you're the best in the world. Like we discussed before, you know, people really focus solely on themselves very selfishly. But you've got to prepare that the the wicked will be destroyed in the last day. The Lord will gather his host to battle against wickedness. And, you know, this is what Babylon represents. So he talks about how the Lord will punish the wicked and humble the proud and make men just basically humble themselves towards the Lord. You know, either they're going to be destroyed because they're of Babylon or they're not. Then he sort of goes back into the physical Babylon. He talks about how Babylon's glory will fade. It'll become uninhabitable. And it's going to be, it's comparable to, you know, the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the, the worst. We have Sodom and Gomorrah. The worst, exactly. So then he sort of compares that again to the, to the spiritual side of it. You know, if you're on the side of Babylon, there's no hope. You're not going to win, essentially. And I think that's something that's, you know, it's really important to understand. Satan is really trying hard to get everyone on his side, but you don't, you can't win. It's just not something that's going to be able to happen he talks about that quite a few you know back and forth all the way through chapter 23 it just really serves as a, as a reminder of the consequences of wickedness and the need for repentance and that's really what he's trying to get at i guess that's probably why he spoke about the millennium first saying peace you know glory everyone's going to lie down together it's just going to be a beautiful place but there is this wickedness and i suppose maybe that's why he mentioned the the millennium mm -hmm. first i'm not sure Yes, yeah, so then he, um, there is a little back and forth with the scriptures that I just want to take you right. on a journey. Where, which, which verse are we going um, to? I don't want to. I want to start oh. in Doctrine and Covenants section okay. 64, verse 24. 64. And it says, 24, for after today cometh the burning. So this is, and it says here, this is speaking after the manner of the Lord. For verily I say, tomorrow all the proud and they that do wickedly shall be as stubble. And I will burn them up, for I am the Lord of hosts, and I will not spare any of them that remain in Babylon. Wow. So it's really, again, I mean, yeah. the Lord's really trying to get these people to understand it. it's, you know, wickedness. But then he starts speaking of Zion, you know, the, the peacefulness of it in chapter 24. And he starts speaking of Zion. 
And um, again, I want to flick to another verse in Doctrine and Covenants about Zion. And that's Doctrine and Covenants section 45. What it says here concerning Babylon, and it's verse 68 and 69. Uh, yep. And it says, and it shall come. And it shall come to pass among the wicked that every man that will not take his sword against his neighbor must needs flee unto Zion for safety. And they shall be gathered in unto it out of every nation under heaven. And it shall be the only people that shall not be at war one with another. So there's peace among the people of Zion. But while this is happening, the wicked Babylonians, or the, the people of Babylon... Um, I don't know how you'd say it, you know, they're constantly going at war with each other. So before the millennium starts, it's going to be a tricky time. But, you know, if you trust in the Lord and, and continue to... And we are, Zion, we are Zion, right? Zion. I think you mentioned that before in, in another episode about Zion is not one particular place. Zion is where you are. Zion is, Zion a, is people, a people, exactly. right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it can be, it can be an that's outback right. branch that's got four members or it can be you know, in the middle of a CBD with 300 or 400 members. Yep, as long as you are. And actually says that in Doctrine of Section 105, and Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. So that is what Zion is. It's those people living as celestial. I mean, we're not perfect, but you're living the best possible way that the law in the, in the best yeah the live. best laws that's trying to trying to abide by the best laws yeah exactly that is that is what zion is so yeah and that's that's essentially you know what he's talking about there he then he goes back and forth again with his analogies in verse 24 and he starts talking about assyria and it can be a bit confusing but i just want to focus on verse 7 so verse so we're talking about the millennium Again, so he's gone back to the millennium, trying to get people to understand, you know, once this all happens, you know, the millennium it says the whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They shall break forth into singing. Just again, just showing how peaceful the world will be if we are, you know, Zion, a, a good people. And I keep, I keep thinking, yeah. I keep, I keep in my mind, keep drawing back to why is Nephi sharing this with his people? And I think you just mentioned it then that. His, his people, you know, what you just mentioned. Nephi's sharing this because he's saying this is what's going to happen in this faith. In this, in this, in this yeah. particular faith, this is what is going to happen. So you need to stick by it, grin and bear it until you get a real testimony, I guess. But in the end, all of these things are going to happen and you need to be in the right place in, in, when they do. Yes, things may get hard. But I promise that if you continue in faithfulness, you will be one of those people that are, you know, resurrected in the millennium or, you know, if you're around at that time, you'll yeah. be in the millennium and it will be a Zion. It will be full of peace, you know, and, and he does specify here in 24 that Lucifer does think he's going to win. He says in from verse 12 to verse 14, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Art thou cut down to the ground, which do weaken right. the nations? Then he says, For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. You know, so he's pretty you know, he's, he's, himself he's pretty like he's gonna win. He's pretty firm that he's gonna win. Yeah, exactly. He's really firm he's gonna win. And it might feel that way. And I feel like a lot of people these days probably feel that way. You know, if they, they go, you know, everyone's so wicked, 
there's more wicked people than there are righteous. You know, I, I just feel like the way the world is going, they sort of feel like they're well, we've 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 read that before. But, you know, I forget what verse it is, but darkness is light and light is darkness, and things that are so so obvious are right. the opposite. Verse sixteen, it really clarifies it. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee, and shall consider thee, and shall say, Is this the man that made the earth so terrible, that did shake kingdoms, and made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed the cities thereof, and opened not the house of his prisoners? Uh, You know, I, I read that, and I think, imagine in the millennium, when Satan is bound, and we see him, and we go, really? That's the guy? That's the one. All of this wickedness yeah. from that guy. Well, who is he to who is he to me that you know? that I could be tempted to do something wrong? Like who is like why why would that person have any power over me? How could that person mm. destroy cities? Yeah, yeah. So it's just an interesting way to look at it from Isaiah's perspective, and yeah, and I really think that's why Nephi really wants his people right. to know that the millennium is coming. This guy, don't worry about this guy. We need to follow the Lord's laws and we will find peace in the millennium. So that's why I feel like, you know, Nephi really wants to push that point. So if we have a look at 25, we don't have tons of time, but there's a couple of things here that I probably felt a little bit silly reading. And that's, that's verse four. I don't know if you had anything before verse four, but verse four, Clive never let, so he, so he, so to give context, Nephi's done. He's written down everything from Isaiah that he wants to, and now he moves into almost explaining why he's put so much effort and emphasis into Isaiah instead of recording the rest of Jacob General Conference or whatever else that they're doing specifically at that time to help grow the kingdom. And he says here, And give ear unto my words, for because the words of Isaiah are not plain unto you, nevertheless, they are plain unto all those that are filled with the spirit of prophecy. And I've read that and I'm like, that's definitely not me because then it's not that plain. But I give unto you a prophecy according to the spirit which is in me. Wherefore, I shall prophesy according to the plainness which hath been with me from the time I came out of out from Jerusalem and my father. For behold, my soul delighteth in the plainness unto my people that they may learn. And so he finishes that with, with it, that they may learn. And it's about reading, understanding, and learning and trying to get that spirit of prophecy to try and just understand things. Skip it and don't worry about it or get the spirit of prophecy and read it a bunch more times and try to really understand the messages that Isaiah and Nephi have, have put together for us. Exactly. And I really feel like Nephi is trying to hone that in again in verse 5 because he says, Yea, my soul right. delighteth in the words of Isaiah, for I came out from Jerusalem. And mine eyes hath beheld the things of the Jews. And so he's, I feel like he's really comparing himself to Isaiah. They're saying, I've come out of the land of Jerusalem and I can see the Jews just That's as right. Isaiah did. So we, we are the same. Okay, so Clive, from yeah. here, so we've got Nephi is really trying to say, here's what you should learn. Here's why I'm not going to teach you about my ancestry in terms of my ancestral religion because that's not what needs to be taught. What needs to be taught is the way of the Lord and the Lord's coming. And I need to teach you that because the Lord's going to come. And remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Not only do they need to believe that the Lord's coming once, they've got to believe that the Lord is coming twice. He's going to be born, complete the atonement, and then go and then come back again at the millennium. 
there's really just not too too much else I wanted to share. Second Nephi 25 is really great, and it's it's a good one if you're going through this week of Come Follow Me and you're not really super keen on going back through more of the Isaiah stuff. Focus on 25 and read at 25 a bunch of times and try to try to just immerse yourself because Nephi goes straight back into it, it is his own words. Yea, behold, this is halfway through 20. Yea, behold, I say unto you, that as these things are true, and as the Lord God liveth, there is none other name given under heaven, save it be this Jesus Christ of whom I have spoken. And then we get to 23. So 2 Nephi 25, 23. And I've got a number, you know, when someone drops a lesson on you and says, oh, can you spirit share a spiritual thought? I've got a bunch of, couple of verses that I go to, but this is definitely one of them. And this is, can be analyzed in a hundred different ways and has been, you know, there's a lot of church documentation on analyzing this one verse, but it's actually very plain and very simple. For we labor, us, we, this is us, for we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. By grace that we are saved after all we can do. There's a few interesting words in there, Clive, like the word after. It's, you know, on the on the surface, you can say, well, after you've tried everything. So when you're 99 years old and you've tried your hardest and now you're done, after all we can do. But actually it's not. After all we can do is a daily or weekly or monthly thing. We, we're always we're always trying oh, yeah. and it's 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 after we got through the day we did as much as we could on that day and it's by it's by the grace in Christ that we'll be saved from the day and tomorrow and the next day after it, it after can really seem like it's an event in time like once you've tried your hardest your whole life after that Christ will save you but actually the the mercy of Christ is far more in detail in our lives than that writing. That's so right. this is what I'm trying to get at. And it's not about deathbed right. repentance. You know, it's not, all right, I'm about to die. Christ will save me. It's okay because I believe in him. And it's not accept Christ into your life and you're saved. It's continue working for it. But no matter how hard you work for it, we'll never make up the gap that Christ needs to fill. Like you said, I remember reading this book a long time ago. And I really don't remember who it was by, but it was called Believing Christ. And it was about that we have to actually believe Christ's promise that he will save us. And there was a, a story in there about this guy who his daughter really wanted to buy this tricycle. And so he said, save up all the money you can and then you can buy it. So she spent, you know, however long to buy it. She was really young, saved up all her pocket money. She didn't even have close to half of it. And she said, you know, she came back, she said, this is all I have. And he said, well, I'll just make sure. up the rest. And that's sort of the idea. You work your hardest. You'll never make up for how much we owe Christ, but he'll always fill in the gaps for us no matter what. And we, you know, we have to keep trying. The trying part is the hardest part and his grace will fill in the rest. Excellent. Well said. Well, why don't we leave it there? Have you got a quote for us? I do have a quote and it, it's by Elder David R. Stone of the 70 back in April 2006. And it's called Zion in the Mist of Babylon. And he says this, he says, We can live as a Zion people if we wish to. Will it be hard? Of course it will. For the waves of Babylonian culture crash incessantly against our shores. 
Will it take courage? Of course it will. We have always been entranced by tales of courage of those who faced fearsome odds and overcome. Courage is the basis and foundation of all of our virtues. The lack of courage diminishes every other virtue that we have. If we are to have Zion in the midst of Babylon, we need to have courage. Well said. Thank you all for joining us on an episode of If You Could Hide to Cola podcast. I hope you're enjoying Come Follow Me Book of Mormon this year and we'll see you again in next week's episode. Yep, we'll see you then.